wherever there's a fight so hungry people can eat, I'll be there. Wherever there's a cop beating up a guy, I'll be there. I'll be in the way guys yell when they're mad. I'll be in the way kids laugh when they're hungry and they know supper's ready. And when the people are eating the stuff they raise and living in the houses they build, I'll be there too. Welcome to the Stereoactive Movie Club. My name is Jeremiah, and I am here with Alicia, Laura, Mia, and Stephen. And we're going to be talking about the 1940 film, The Grapes of Wrath, directed by John Ford. But before we go on, let's hear from everyone about one movie they've watched recently that they want to talk about here. Stephen? I watched Jurassic World Dominion last week. Um, it was on Peacock. And um, I've seen all the other ones in the theater. And this is the first one I haven't actually seen in the theater. Um, and they had a, the extended version, which was two hours and 40 minutes, which was way too long. Um, it wasn't that good. It was entertaining enough. But I just realized that I, maybe I'm just over dinosaurs in movies uh, just because it just felt like a slog this time around. But um, it, it looked good. But other than that, it was kind of a waste of time. So dinosaurs are over? I think so. Yeah. At least for a while. They, we need a break. Although it was good seeing Laura Dern and um, what's Daniel. that guy's name? Golden. Yeah. Uh, they, yeah, they still had a lot of chemistry. So that was nice. But other than that, it was it was kind of a slog. All right. And Alicia, how about you? Um, I watched the Baz Luhrmann Elvis. <laughs> And that was quite an experience. I, I managed to get through it. I remember, Laura, you said you tried to watch it and you couldn't. I couldn't get through it. I thought it was interesting that they chose to focus on Colonel Tom as like the lens through which the story was being told. But then I, I was also kind of like, well, then why would you call it Elvis? Because it's really kind of more about his relationship with Elvis and whole, like Elvis's whole life and also... The timing was weird. It was very long, and I felt like the timing was very strange. And, of course, it was just like a fever dream in terms of, like, the visuals and everything that was happening in it. So, I mean, it was, like, really Lerman at his most Lermanist. Yeah, it was um, like a mess or something. Yeah, it was like, okay, <laughs> why was that necessary? No. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know if I could recommend it or not. But if you're just looking to have, like, a weird afternoon, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's a filmmaker who follows his own bliss. That's for sure. Definitely. definitely. Uh, Laura, what about you? What have you, what have you watched? I watched a movie called the sunlit night. It's a 2019 indie movie um, directed by a guy named David Ment. I'm not really sure how to pronounce his name. And it's Jenny slate and it's about art and she goes to Norway and does a residency there. And you know, I, I have some inside information on this movie because a friend of mine is a critic and she saw it like during some festival and she loved it. And then she saw it again and it had been recut differently and mm -hmm. it wasn't the same film. And this is that the version that I saw is what is, was released widely, the second cut. And I just found that interesting. And it, 
it it is a flawed movie. It's meandering and weird tonally. Um, but it's basically like, do you want to hang out with Jenny Slate in Norway for a couple of hours? Yeah, I really do. And <laughs> so I did. And it was perfectly charming because she is. So that's what I thought. Well, that can happen a lot, actually, because so many of those movies at festivals, they're there for the marketplace at the festival. So if they get bought by a distributor, they might have some notes about the yeah. edit before before they're willing to actually put it out. So it happens more more often than maybe a lot of people would like, especially yeah, some of the filmmakers, I, I bet. But I bet, because yeah. I heard the other version was um, really striking. Yeah. But I enjoyed it because, like I said, it right. was charming. Okay. Well, uh, Mia, how about you? I watched a Netflix movie called Do Revenge, and it is so fun, and I highly, highly recommend it. It just came out like the last few days, and it's a dark comedy based on Hitchcock Strangers on a Train, which I've never seen, so I can't speak to like how similar this was. But it's uh, two girls in like a fancy high school in Miami getting doing revenge on people. And it's really fun. I read about it because it plays homage to a lot of like 90s, like teen rom-coms, like 10 Things I Hate About You, Cruel Intentions, like that era of movies, which I love. And so I wanted to see this because it was sort of being billed as like a homage to those things but like updated and fresh and everything and it's like also super florida like lots of pink and florida colors and very miami and like all of that so it was just really really fun um i highly recommend watching it um that movie is getting a lot of buzz on like the blogs and Mm -hmm. like you know it's really interesting i'm definitely gonna check it out yeah it's really good um, I don't use that term buzz often. <laughs> <laughs> oh, also, um, Maya Hawk is the co-lead in it, who is Uma Thurman and Ethan Hawke's daughter. She, in some of the scenes, it's uncanny how much she looks like Uma Thurman, like splitting image. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, well, I have been filling a blind spot I've mean- been meaning to for a while because uh, Austin Film Society has has been playing Christoph Kislowski's Three Colors trilogy from the 90s. They came out in, uh, it's three movies. Uh, they came out in 93 and 94. Um, and I saw Three Colors Blue and Three Colors Red there. I did not get a chance to go see White when it was playing there. Um, but I really liked both of them a lot. Um, I wish I'd seen them sooner. It was great to, to have the experience of seeing them for the first time. My first time seeing them be on the big screen. I appreciated Mm -hmm. that. And um, I definitely see why red is the one that generally gets picked out. Like I liked both of them a lot. And I think blue has got a lot of uh, uh, a lot of, you know, accolades as well. But um, red was the one that got nominated for like best director and best screenplay at the 94 Oscars against like Pulp Fiction and Shawshank Redemption, Forrest Gump and stuff. And uh, it, it was just really good. And it was like a movie that I left being like, I want to read so much about this and figure out like, what was this about? And like, what was trying to get at with this thing and that thing? Uh, so it's like, you know, great for that. I, I love when a movie just, uh, you, you just keep wanting to live with it after you're done actually watching it. And uh, want to just go watch it again soon. So yeah. When uh, I was working at Scarecrow, it. I would always... Um... <laughs> I would clock 
who would rent which first, mm. even though they're in order, because I would always just see, oh, well, that's the one he thinks is the cutest. It's like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, the, the three leading ladies. Yeah. yeah it's Because Julia Binoche is in blue. Julie Delpy is in white. And then I didn't know, I don't know her from anything else, but it, what was, I forget her name now. Irene something is in red. I um, don't know her name. Yeah. But very good movie. I highly recommend it. Uh, so for those who may not have listened to the show before, this is a podcast where the five of us are discussing movies that have appeared on Sight and Sound Magazine's poll of the greatest movies ever made that comes out every 10 years. The next poll will be out sometime this year in 2022. So we're basically trying to watch some of the movies from past polls before the new one is out. And again, this time we are talking about The Grapes of Wrath. But before we get into the history and background of the movie, what did each of us know about it going into this viewing? Who had seen it before? If you hadn't seen it, what were you expecting, if anything? And Mia, since you picked this one, can you start us off by answering those questions and also remind us uh, why you chose it? I've seen this movie before several times. I think this might have been my third or fourth time seeing it. And I've also read the book at least once, but maybe twice. And I've read a couple other Steinbeck things, too. Um, he's a pretty good writer. Um, <laughs> and although, well, I'll talk about this later. He might be a little bit of a plagiarist with this one. So I love this movie. I love the book. I love the message behind it. I think it's absolutely timeless of, you know, family and connection to the land and struggles to remain a family and hold on to your dignity in the face of oppression and capitalism and exploitation. And um, yeah, I just, you know, it was a good movie. I felt like a nice warm sweater of a movie this round. So that's why I wanted to pick it. Okay. And Stephen. What about you? I've only heard of this movie and, of course, the book, but I've never read the book and I hadn't seen the movie before. The only thing I really knew about it was that um, Henry Fonda was the main character. And I've seen several like screen grabs of the movie, which were pretty famous, you know, with him and the, the, the pickup truck with his family. Um, but other than that, yeah, I went into it blind. OK. And Laura? I knew it was an epic film based on a book that I was never assigned in school. Because I did not have a very good education. <laughs> okay. And uh, Alicia? I'd seen it once before, uh, and I've never read the book. Um, although I have read other Steinbeck, East of Eden, and Of Mice and Men, which I think pretty much probably everybody has read. Um, and yeah, I liked I thought it was really great the first time I saw it. Okay. Um, I've actually only read um, Steinbeck shorts. I never got assigned a full novel of his and feel like I should go back and read it. I've, I've seen this movie now after this three times. I saw it, uh, I think, in high school when I was just, you know, wanted to watch a bunch of John Ford movies. And then I watched it with Mia sometime at the start of the pandemic, I think. We decided to watch it. And then this time. And uh, I've liked it each time. It's yeah, I'll get into more later. I don't want to I don't want to give it all away up front. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, it's a good movie. Um, so that's where we stood on the film before watching it for this episode. And we'll get more into the film in just a moment. But first, let's take a break. Music. 
And we're back. So, as I've often done on the show, I'm going to read from an entry in the Ultimate Encyclopedia of the Movies, which I got when I was in high school and first really getting into movies. As always, the parts that may be more subjective are not from me personally, but perhaps we can delve into those things as we get into our group discussion. Ford's masterwork, The Grapes of Wrath, is based on John Steinbeck's Great Depression-era tragedy about Oklahoma farmers, victims of the Dust Bowl and capitalist greed trekking west to California for a better life. Their story is told through the experiences of one family, the Jodes. The stark conclusion of Steinbeck's novel has been softened to one of hope for the future and belief in the American people, understandable in the political and filmmaking context of the time. But the film's magnificently tragic picture of people clinging to their human dignity and self-respect in the face of an indifferent and inhumane society teaches a universal lesson for all time and is a beautiful and moving piece of storytelling. Nanali Johnson's dialogue is emotionally engaging, and visually the film is set against the stark landscape and the real-life migrant camps, vividly captured by Greg Toland's black-and-white photography. Henry Fonda is outstanding as Tom Joad, the eldest son, as is John Carradine as the preacher-turned-union activist, while Jane Darwell more than earned her Oscar for her portrayal of the indomitable, undefeated Ma Joad, struggling to hold her family together. The film also won a well-deserved Oscar for Ford's direction and five other nominations. Ford is to be saluted for both his artistic achievement and his courage in making the film at a time when government and studios were in no mood to encourage unions and criticism of capitalism. Again, that was from the Ultimate Encyclopedia of the Movies. Steinbeck's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel was released in 1939, just shy of a year before the movie was released. It was the best-selling novel of that year and was cited as a major part of the basis on which Steinbeck was awarded a Nobel Prize for Literature in 1962. The politics and story of the book were potentially thorny enough that Daryl Avzanik, the famed producer at 20th Century Fox, sent investigators to witness just how bad the situation in Oklahoma actually was so he'd know whether he'd feel equipped to defend the film against any criticism for being potentially pro-communist. That said... The aforementioned politics and story were still softened somewhat as compared to the book. Ford was coming off of a banner year, having directed three films in 1939, Stagecoach, Young Mr. Lincoln, and Drums Along the Mohawk, the latter two with Henry Fonda, who himself had additionally been in another three movies in 1939. The film received plenty of rave reviews and accolades, including this one from Frank Nugent for the New York Times, which is perhaps one of the most laudatory reviews I've ever read for a movie. In the vast library where the celluloid literature of the screen is stored, there is one small uncrowded shelf devoted to the cinema's masterworks, to those films which by dignity of theme and excellence of treatment seem to be of enduring artistry, seem destined to be recalled not merely at the end of their particular year, but whenever great motion pictures are mentioned. To that shelf of screen classics, 20th Century Fox yesterday added its version of John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. As previously stated, John Ford won a Best Director Oscar for the film, while Jane Darwall won Best Supporting Actress. It was also nominated for Outstanding Production, or what is today called Best Picture, Best Actor for Henry Fonda, Best Screenplay, Best Film Editing, and Best Sound Recording. Arguably, there was no big winner of the Academy Awards for 1940, as the results for the bigger awards were split between several movies. But Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca won Outstanding Production, and Jimmy Stewart 
won Best Actor for The Philadelphia Story. Meanwhile, the top-grossing films of 1940 in North America were, from one to five, Boomtown, The Great Dictator, Rebecca, The Philadelphia Story, and Strike Up the Band. In more recent years, The Grapes of Wrath was on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movies list, ranked at number 21 in 1998, and then at number 23 in 2007. As for our purposes, the movie has never actually appeared in the top 10 of Sight and Sound's critics or director surveys, but it was a runner-up on the very first list back in 1952. In the 2012 polling, it is ranked number 183 by critics and number 174 by directors, and among the filmmakers who had it on their top 10 lists that year was Lawrence Kasdan. Mia, since this was your pick, can you start us off with your thoughts on the film this time around and whether it re-met your expectations on this viewing? It definitely re-met my expectations. I mean, it's it's always interesting watching movies that I've seen before and maybe watch just kind of like for fun and then watching them again, knowing that I have to talk about them and sound like halfway sensical because it just makes me pick up on so much more things or think about things more critically. And so to me, what really stuck out this time, obviously, like the overarching messages of, you know, people need to stick together and unionizing and the only way to, you know, get a fair wage that you need to survive and to hold these people who have the power accountable is strength in numbers. Like, obviously, I'd picked up on that before, but I don't know. I think just the current political climate and everything just underscored it that much more. So there was that. And then I also really paid attention to Casey this time. I think before, I don't know, I just like hadn't really zeroed in on him. And this time I just could not take my eyes off him. I think the first the first few times I saw this, I was like way more focused on Henry Fonda and for like obvious reasons. Um, but this time it just really like he was just so luminous in his eyes and his long neck and just I don't know I just was like more scenes of him that's what I want to see so that was really my hook this time okay and Steven what'd you think I really enjoyed it um I um, like Laura said it is one of those classic movies that everybody talks about as well as the book um but yeah I really enjoyed the performances a lot I don't think I've seen Henry Fond in a lot of a lot of movies in general but um he he definitely sold it as like you know when he starts out you see that he's a you know he went to jail and he's not exactly a good guy so you kind of know that he's not going to be like this savior this arch arch typical character that's going to be like the good guy throughout so I, I kind of like that about him. He had a little bit of an edge to him. But like what Mia said, yeah, I, I thought Casey was a really strong character, although he did give me the creeps mm-hmm. um, just because of the way that it was lit. And I think that maybe that was sort of the point where you were supposed to really focus on him just because of the way that it, it sort of looked when he was on screen. Um, but the acting throughout with everybody was really great. I do wish that there was more about the family, though, other than like the the major characters, which was the mother, I think, and then... Um, Tom and um, I think, you know, even Casey was a main character, but, you know, the other people sort of had their roles here and there, but they were the main focus of it. Um, And then overall, I just thought that the storytelling was kind of a journey, which I really enjoyed. And so 
um, just seeing the looks on everybody's faces of being kind of hopeful, but sort of like dread at the same time was interesting. And no matter what was happening to them, they sort of expected it, but yet they were, it was unexpected at the same time. So I really paid attention to that when I viewed it a second time. Um, but yeah, overall, I, I really did like it. All right. And Alicia. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's a great film and a really interesting like work of art and an interesting story. Um, I also was sort of struck by Casey this time. I just kept thinking how much he resembled, how much his David Carradine resembled him, which is it's his son and um, <laughs> Henry Fonda, <laughs> whose face I just love. Like, I just feel like, I think because I saw on Golden Pond when I was really young, I just, he's like the nation's grandpa or something in my mind. <laughs> like, I just really enjoy um, seeing him like young and uh, sort of beautiful in his way and doing a really wonderful performance. And um, yeah, the movie, the the message is obviously extremely important. And I just, um, I drew a lot of parallels to like Bicycle Thieves this time around watching it, mm. even though I know Bicycle Thieves was made a bit later, but I think seeing them so relatively close together <laughs> um, sort of made me pick up on that a little bit more. Um, yeah, I, I just, it's, it's, it's great. Laura. I knew it was going to be a good movie from the first shot that of of Henry Fonda alone and just the light and and in fact that whole first sequence was so, you know, um impactful to me that I actually I was like I got to watch that again. You know, the whole truck scene. <laughs> I was like mm-hmm. so I just rewound it and went with it and I I've um I watched the movie a couple of times just, you know, it's it's an incredible film. Um I can't I don't want to repeat anything that that you guys have said but I agree with a lot of things like watching the OG Carradine just like was just killer you know and super into it and um then you know to Steven's point more about the family like one family member just actually disappears yeah. Noah and there's nothing <laughs> yeah. said nobody knows what happened yeah. to him nobody gives I didn't a even shit. know his name until you said yeah um, and you know I gotta say he was dead weight so yeah he was. <laughs> you get rid of that guy um and then you know Henry Fonda is so beautiful and amazing and you know that speech and then there's just the like you know I could see it being almost to the point it, it's so good but then it's a little much you know like the mom is amazing but ma like you're mean mad don't get mean you know nobody <laughs> talks like that and so and then i also noticed that henry fonda has a hairy back <laughs> i did not notice that i didn't okay. catch that when? he does and i was like that. all right man like this is like 1940 movie type stuff when do we even and then back? you guys got you miss it are you kidding you've seen this like multiple times is it when Does they're in the water? It? Is that what you I mean? was almost yeah. counting the the hair mm. on the back. Okay. I, yeah, I loved the movie. It was great. <laughs> really? <laughs> um, I I still really liked the movie after the third viewing. I, I liked it when I was a kid watching it for the first time. And then it hit hard at the start of the pandemic. I remember I watched it for a podcast uh, that I used to do that I'm not actually allowed to name um, that uh, that that we did a, a, an episode where we talked about um, 
non-pandemic pandemic movies, essentially, like movies that like evoked a feeling that we were going through as like a couple weeks or months or however long it was into the pandemic at that time. And Grapes of Wrath was one that I chose just because it, it, I think it got it something about like needing to uh, be a part of something, needing to, you know, think of others. And that seemed like a very important message that a lot more people at that time were taking to heart. And then, the, you know, things kind of went to shit from there. But um, the lack of dignity and stuff. It's a great yeah. choice, Jeremy. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's a really good movie to, to some of the points that people brought up. Uh, yeah, the, the Casey of it. Like, I always remember him being a bigger part of the movie. He's actually not in it that much, but he just makes mm -hmm. such a mark yeah. when he's there. And I think that that is definitely, as, as y'all are pointing out, a testament to his performance and his skills as an actor and everything going on around that character. You know, like the way he's lit, like you said, the way he's being directed, the scenes that he is in, he's just like super impactful. Um, and... Yeah, I, I just I, I just still really do enjoy it. Um, and then I, I, I wanted to go ahead and bring up this. Um, I forget who someone was saying something that made me think of it, but I'd already had it in our show notes, you know, and all that. But like, I think that this movie, I, I wonder if if Ford was influenced at all by expressionist filmmaking, like like we watched Sunrise last episode and that's an ex a German expressionist film. And I'm not saying that he's going to that same length, but it's there are moments that are so over the top, like the mother. I, Laura, you, you called that out. Like, no one acts like that, really. But it, it's a certain type of filmic acting from that period that is emotive, and it's, it's expressive in a way that gets at a truth rather than a reality. And I think that that's what this is going for. It's based on Steinbeck. It's like, you know, it's Ford being like poetic on top of having a message and having, you know, the, the more realistic moments of family and, um, you know, issues. It's an issues movie. <laughs> but um, yeah, do, what, what do people think of that? Do you, do you think that there is a hint of expressionistic filmmaking in here or am I kind of making that up? Laura? I noticed the layered shots. There was a lot of um, like when the tractors came and how he um, with the, the sound and the layered tractor on tractor. I, that mm. reminded me a lot of Sunrise. Okay. And I think it happened a few times in there too. Um, so I, I, not only do I think with the performance, I think that visually it absolutely did was inspired by that. Yeah, I think there's something about the set design, too, because you could tell when you watch a lot of these movies, like, you know, they, they do a pretty good job of making a soundstage look like not a soundstage, but you can still kind of mm -hmm. tell. Yeah. And I think there are certain shots, especially in this movie and other movies of the era, where they kind of lean into that um, that falseness of the scenery and the set design and let it help them and lean like i said lean into it rather than trying to hide that it's a set and that it doesn't quite cut together with the footage that they actually shot outside in the in the scene or the shot before but but it still works because they're like going after something that that it, like i said isn't necessarily realistic but is truthful i agree completely yeah i thought um 
I don't want to, I don't think this movie is like melodramatic at all. I mean, maybe like in one or two moments, but I do think some of the acting, I, as you mentioned, like Ma, I do think that's somewhat, at least in the beginning of the film, a little bit of a melodramatic performance. And I think like the the grandparents as well, mm-hmm. both of those performances are, are a little bit, I don't want to, I don't know if melodramatic is the right word, but that's the only word I can think of. But they're like, I, I think you're right when you say they're like of that period. They're of that time where like you did like a performance for the Like film. vaudevillian kind of thing? Yeah, mm-hmm. or like silent mm-hmm. film or, you know, something where where you're just, you're doing a lot. Um, mm-hmm. It's not bad. Like I think it, I think it works because it is, it is made at the time. But there were moments that I was like, is this like a realistic portrayal of of these people or is this a little bit condescending? You know, sometimes mm-hmm. I had that thought, but I mean, I think overall the movie's not trying to condescend to them. I just think sometimes the those specific performances were a little bit in that way. Is there is there a particular moment you can point to as an example? Just just I think like the some of the ac- the accents I think are a little mm-hmm. bit not accurate and a little bit over the top and i just think they portray them as being like very simple folk which i'm sure that plenty of people from oklahoma or farmers were like simple folk but like i'm sure there were plenty that were not and i don't know i feel like tom is kind of the only person in the movie and maybe and casey as well that are not like simple folk if that's even an okay word to use <laughs> you know what i mean but i don't th- i don't yeah. think it's like i said i don't think it's that the film is saying they're simple i think it's more like these performances are just a little bit over the top and so that kind of makes it a right. little bit like oh god like these people <laughs> sometimes steven i feel like um with tom's character though he was a little more worldly i mean he did go to prison and he yeah, also you know he killed yeah homicide and he did kill you know he killed somebody and then he got out so i mm-hmm. felt like he was just a little bit more above everybody else in terms of just his experiences and they did sort of walk into things kind of wide-eyed and he was just kind of giving everything the side eye a little bit and that's mm-hmm. why he was so cynical so i felt like he actually was acting a little bit differently than everybody else but yeah alicia i kind of understand it now that you've you've kind of spelled it out a little bit more about the other people in the movie, especially the the daughter who was had the relationship with the uh, the other guy that just walked out, mm. I just like their performances just did not work for me at all. <laughs> it it just felt okay. like that was part of it. Yeah, she didn't. I, I mean, for me, I just mm-hmm. I, every time she was on screen, I just didn't believe whatever she was saying. I mean, I, I don't know if she was just wasn't given enough to do for me to really formulate like an opinion about her. But I yeah, I just didn't. Yeah, right. I thought she was all right, but like she, like you said, she didn't have that much to do. And uh, but I did wonder how she was managing to feed and 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 stay healthy during that pregnancy. How she managed to keep it, but well, yeah. I don't know. now's she your chance, Mia. <laughs> yeah, no, well, that's what I'm saying. I was like, is she still pregnant, or what's going on? Here? <laughs> that bothered me the whole time. Like every time she came on screen, I was like, literally, like, is it illegal to show a pregnant woman mm. in this mm-hmm. time in movies and stuff? Because like, just you never see her pregnant. And I was like, how hard would it have been to like shove a pillow under her dress? You know? <laughs> yeah, she just looks like a 
unpregnant woman the she entire just looks time. like a yeah. person and i get like at the beginning i was like oh okay like it's early you're not showing yet you know but like by the end like the, i think the last scene you see her they're like literally have to carry her into the wagon but she's yeah. like flat yeah. as a board you know and i'm like what is happening here i also wondered if like the the family i thought it was the family was trying to hide that she was pregnant because mm. um I don't know, like her husband had gone. So they were like, oh, we don't want people to think she's just like the single pregnant mm. woman, which at the time would be yeah. kind of scandalous. I was actually surprised they seemed not as, I mean, obviously they know it's not her fault. Her husband ran off, you know, but like, I don't know. Everybody were just kind of like, okay, he's gone. We just got to like carry on. And maybe in the mm-hmm. grand scheme of everything, they're like, our social mores have just like melted away because we're just focused on surviving. But yeah, I thought there'd be a bit more like, what are we going to do? We got to find someone else or we got to come up with a story we tell people. I mean, I know that's not the focus of the movie really. So maybe that's why I didn't go into it, but it's mm-hmm. just like, this isn't that realistic at the time. I think people would have cared. So I thought they were going to survive. She did look great. Um, I, I guess I just thought that they had so many things going wrong um, yeah. in succession yeah. that that was just mm-hmm. one of, you know, added to the list. Problems. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yep, yep, yep. In the book, I will say though, the baby is stillborn. And I think Aww. there's some implication that it's because of the journey and malnourishment yeah. and all of that. So that actually really in the when they're traveling out there and they run into that guy whose kids have died, um, mm-hmm. and who's talking about like California ain't all that, you know, you think it's gonna be out there, that also was like really devastating to me. That just like I it yeah. really hit me this time. Like I can't believe that people were treated like this in this country not that long ago and but like people are treated like this every single day both like in america and like other obviously like you know when they go to the first migrant camp i was like this is what it looks like when people are living at the border in mexico because they can't come to america even though they're seeking asylum like i don't know i'm going off now but or even in america or even in america oh of course absolutely Yeah. yeah 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 Yeah, the migrant thing that was the big, the people coming from Mexico or Central South America was the biggest like parallel I drew to like current day as well. Yeah. Um, It's just, it's, it's crazy that this kind of thing still happens. Yeah. Yeah. Like Um, children should not starve to death anywhere. I wanted to maybe revisit a little bit of something we discussed in our searchers episode, because, you know, we have talked about John Ford before in that episode, our guest JPK, our friend of all of ours, um, came with the question basically of like, is it time to essentially cancel posthumously John Ford based on his representation of, uh, native Americans and various things. And we got into a discussion then of like, he was actually someone, John Ford, who, in a lot of ways, uh, identified with the working class and, uh, and considered himself and, and was kind of lefty as opposed to like John Wayne, who was very outspoken on the other side of things. And I think that this movie is obviously like, you know, the a great representation of, of that inclination of his. And, you know, I'm just curious if anyone had any thoughts about this movie in relation to The Searchers or any other John Ford movies you may have seen 
in your own movie watching? Like, how do you think of this movie in his filmography that you know of, or or what you know of John Ford just from him being, you know, one of those directors who's like the the epitome of who a director is according to Hollywood or a classic Hollywood, I should say. Well, I don't think it's a communist <laughs> manifesto <laughs> like the critics <laughs> right, came right. out and attacked at the time. But it definitely seems socialist, socialist right? For yeah. sure. Or just at least labor positive. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, Power to the people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think socialist with the the government camp, you know, like, I don't know. They're, yeah. Now, I, I kept, when, when they get to the camp and they're so excited, I kept thinking, who was it that said, like, the scariest words are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help? Isn't like Reagan or something. <laughs> yeah, it's like, like one, of those, one, one of those jackasses. One of those assholes. But anyways, I was like, look at this government-run camp that's like literally yeah. heaven compared to what they've been through. Or how they like, they zoomed in, like mm-hmm. <laughs> Department of Agriculture. And I know, right. yeah. <laughs> but I wondered yeah. how realistic that was. You know, I don't know if that was, I don't know if the, the government-run camps were any better than the Hoovervilles or, you know, I don't know. I think they the were. New Deal. Mm-hmm. So I think they, I did a little bit of reading up on this and I think he actually did like, well, sorry, let me say Steinbeck, I think did a lot of actual research and going around and interviewing people. And the book came out of a seven part investigative series he did for, I'm blanking on the newspaper, but like the one in San Francisco. So I think he actually did like pretty good research. The fucked up part though. So there was a woman writing like basically the same book um it was called and then i'll get back to your question jeremiah whose names are unknown her name is sonora bab and she literally worked in like the intake center in one of these government camps and had all these like interviews she'd done with migrant farmers and all of this information and research this novel sketched out that like basically is the grapes of wrath, but a little different. And she'd grown up in Kansas and had like been a displaced farmer's mm-hmm. kid and all this stuff. Someone gave her notes to John Steinbeck and he like totally ripped her off and plagiarized wow. her. Yeah. And so then, and he was like already like a more well-known author. So then when she's shopping around her book, like she'd already sort of had been, but was like taking longer to write it or whatever. And then he like spat out the book in like five months to beat her to the finish line. And then he uh, then like a year later, they were all like, well, we've there's already this like huge hit book. Like, no. So the book didn't get published until a year before she died in like the early 2000s. Wow. Totally wow. robbed. And apparently it's really good. Um, oh, my God. I just had it. It's called Whose Names Are Unknown. And apparently it's really good. I think even though it wasn't published, like historians and people have like referred to it over the years. So um, you know, it's like considered pretty accurate. Sorry, Alicia, that was a really long answer to your question. Oh, and taking thank you us for sharing that. Far afield. Yeah. I was yeah. furious when I found it out. Like this is this man won the freaking Nobel Prize, like largely based on this book, and he scammed it off this woman. Well, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> I know, yeah, I, know. I know. I was it sounds like, like the world we live in for sure. Shocked but not surprised. The surprise yeah. but not shocked, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the only other John Ford I've seen is The Searchers. I unless you can name off another some I've of I've never seen other... Stagecoach. Yeah, I mean Stagecoach is good. Um mm-hmm. that's awesome. yeah. something um, about the Mohawk. Yeah, drums along the Mohawk, Young Mr. Lincoln. I've seen Young um, Mr. Lincoln. With which Henry I liked Fonda very much. also. Um, there's, uh, Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, um, How Green Was My Valley, um. Maybe I've seen that. 
there's a lot more. There's a lot. <laughs> he made a lot of movies. He made a lot yeah. of movies. And that's not like, not even getting into the plenty of silent movies he made. In the 20s. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, he's known as like the cowboy director, you know? And then, but but I find it interesting. I don't think he won any of his, I think, four Oscars for any of his cowboy movies. It, it was like Grapes of Wrath, How Green Was My Valley, and I don't remember what the other ones were. But um, I don't know. It's it's just interesting that he has like this kind of range of movies he makes. It's a lot of cowboy stuff, and then like there's I don't know if there's other movies that fit this mold for him. Um, I'm I couldn't tell you from the stuff I have seen, but um, I don't know. I just I just like since we had such a deep conversation, I know it was a long time ago for us at this point um, about whether he was a director who we should just kind of write off because of some of the poor portrayals in some of his cowboy movies. Um, having seen this movie now, I wondered if anybody wanted to revisit that or had additional thoughts on it. I just think you take each movie for what it is. Like that one is problematic. And so it needs to have some context around it. I mean, this one I don't think is anywhere near as problematic. It's very similar in that they're both like these epics of people like going on a journey and stuff. But I think this one's really, it's just so different. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's not, to me, he's not like Woody Allen level where you would like right. just cancel him, you know? I feel like that was sort of the consensus we came to in The Searchers was that he, it probably, you just probably, that film probably just needs like a warning or something at the beginning, oh, yeah. sort of similar to, to Gone with the Wind. Yeah. yeah. But right. I mean, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm like not in favor of canceling him or just especially not like this movie I do think is really valuable. And besides just like being like, besides the message of the movie, I think it's just like a historically like important, mm-hmm. you know, piece. I don't know. Anyone else? <laughs> I was just going to say just the Woody Allen thing. So many of his movies seem so autobiographical of Woody Allen. And so I think that's part of the problem with him too. Whereas I don't know that much about John Ford, but I don't think he was like a cowboy. And I also don't think he was like living in the Great Depression like this. So right. you mean like we can't watch Manhattan and just pretend anymore? <laughs> it's more difficult Manhattan, at least so <laughs> i know but they're great bad. movies they're it's, great yeah. movies i know it's a, yeah. it's a loss for all of us i know, know. Ways. but people have to make their own decisions and yeah of course don't right. judge that jeremiah had kind of mentioned this to me earlier that he was thinking about a question like this so then i started reading an article about it and i i, I will totally admit i just started skimming at some point because it seemed like he was like he was doing these like really cool like anti-blacklist things but then he like swung completely the other way and was doing this like within the span of like the same day sometimes Mm -hmm. so i was more curious like is john ford just like a chaos agent and he was just like (laughs) boom like flame throwing and like i don't know was he just like oh grapes of wrath this is like this hugely popular book of course i'm gonna make a movie about it like how much was he really like like it's not like he wrote the book and was like driving the message behind it and if anything they soften the message of course from what's in the book um it's still pretty gnarly though yeah i mean i I know everyone talks about how softening is it but it's really dark movie oh for sure Mm. yeah yeah i'm just saying like it's not like he came up this wasn't his um like vision right right, you know so 
Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I think I, if if you and I'm not saying I do or anyone should, but if you buy it all into the auteur theory, he's the one responsible for making this movie what it is ultimately, or like at least drawing all the uh, resources and creative power of the people around him to make to orchestrate what we've seen and it's to me so like you cannot deny that this movie is like uh very leftist maybe especially for the time i don't i mean it was in the fdr era where you have the new deal and also maybe it's not even that left i don't know but um from today's perspective it seems left as hell and that's what i love about it and it's mm -hmm. like like a socialist message almost through and through in a way that like i wish that like i can't think of a mainstream movie that could pull this off today i mean we don't have mainstream movies like this anymore it's, like norma really ray i mean that's 40 years ago yeah What's Sorry. Norma Ray? I don't know what that movie it's is. It's about um, uh, Sally Field. Sally Field. Uh, Union. About yeah, unions and mm -hmm. and like, um, what is it? On the waterfront. Yeah. I'm just well, thinking again, about like, from the fifties, but. I'm just yeah. thinking. I guess someone needs to make a new like Starbucks like. Yeah. <laughs> you know Brando and like coffee and. You no, know, I just think that like movies like up. that that have a similar message today, like one that it, it's not a great analog. But something that is super lefty that came out recently is Nomadland. sorry to bother you. Oh, what was what, it? What did you say? No bad land. What did you sure. say, Jeremiah? I said sorry to bother you. But both of those are indie movies. They they do not mm -hmm. exist mm -hmm. on the same scale that a Grapes of Wrath did in its day, or even a Norma Ray did in its day, or on the waterfront. You know, it's like these movies. Those kind of movies don't get made at this scale anymore. I mean, it, that says maybe more about just like the state of movies than anything. Um, but I don't know. Like, I, I think to what Mia was saying before, though, just to go back to that for a second. Like, I, I think that he seems like he's obviously or was obviously a guy, John Ford, who was just like had passions <laughs> and he wasn't consistent. Um, but I don't know any and like I think he was a, a compromised person. He he made compromises. I mean, mm -hmm. in his politics and stuff, just because he wanted to keep working and he did keep working when other people didn't, and he pushed certain barriers a little bit, but then like yeah, would back off of them. Um, so I don't think he's like a perfect person or anything in terms of like uh, behind the scenes, not as a director, you know. But um, I do think he. He seems to have, have, in some cases, championed messages like this, at least. I mean, he's made this movie, so. Um, yeah, I mean, he's still like going saying... to be making, he's still, a, he's still a movie maker for a machine, which was Hollywood. Yeah. And he probably had to make concessions when he had to, to, like you said, to keep working. So I feel yeah. like, you know, like what Alicia said before, it's just like you kind of have to take each movie as its own thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's kind of crazier to me and this goes with what you're saying, Stephen, is that a studio decided to make this, but I do think it gets back down to capitalism, which is ironic mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it was a best-selling book and they're like, there's money to be made from, from putting this movie out because people will go see it. Yeah. So. And, like and the movie was like, uh, you said that the ending was changed, so they had to make it more uplifting for audiences or else they would just want to, you know, yeah. not, not want to put up with their lives. <laughs> yeah, when they left. So. 
Um, like and another thing I was thinking of, if you did, sorry, Alicia. No, 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 um, not at all. Another thing, I feel like you could make a movie like this today, but you'd have to make it like a fantasy kind of movie, as in like a Lord of the Rings type, but make it like socialist, or it'd have right. to be in the future. Like it would have to take place in the future. Like an alternative so could, universe. Yeah, that's the only, that's what I think you'd have to do. But That's a good point. That would be cool. Kind of, I'd be interested. I'm into that. like that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, like, I feel like you see, we do see, like, movies that have a message, but especially in terms of, like, I think it's gotten more just, like, anti-corporate or as, as opposed to, like, lay, focusing on the how collective action could mm-hmm. benefit that. It's more like, let's sue these bastards. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. okay, sometimes that is, like, a collective action that you can take, but that's, like, after the worst has already happened. We don't see a lot right. of movies anymore about like, you know, getting, organizing yourselves before the worst that could possibly happen. Right. Where do you think Michael Clayton falls in this? In the, <laughs> do you think, haven't seen. I mean, it's definitely more of the, what Alicia was describing Versus, of like, yeah. let's sue these bastards or there, there's something going on and we need to get to the bottom of, but right. I mean, I, but with Grapes of Wrath, I do think it's important to just like contextualize it. Of This movie came out in 1940. The book came out not even a year before. And so they're, it's about a thing that just happened to a lot of people who are being portrayed by, by these archetypal characters in the book and the movie of the Joad family. And then they're on the precipice of World War II. Um, I mean, it's happening, but the US hasn't entered it yet. And so it's like the just the world that this movie entered into was just so different than I think like when we watch this movie from um you know from our couch today or something, it's like it's it's just hard it it's easy to just see it as like a classic movie rather than a classic movie that came out in that particular moment between the great depression and world war two and like was about something, you know? Well, I have to say, I mean, I think that there's a lot of recent films that are about a collective movement, but they're just in the energies or towards the civil rights movement or um, they're expressing Mm -hmm. like, like Judas and the black Messiah or like, you know, films that are, Mm -hmm. they're just dealing with different content necessarily. But it's mm-hmm. um, a similar, you know, activi- activate, you know, Wonder Twin Power Act. Sorry. Um, mm. You know, that was my point, which I made. So <laughs> I, think. I think that's, I think that's a fair <laughs> Shut point. Shut up now. <laughs> How does – I? it's also making me think about Parasite, which I feel like is like the same as this movie, but also like a Black Mirror version of this movie like in a, a way too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like class struggles. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to just do what you got to do. But like, whereas, you know, the Jodes are like, we want to work. We don't want charity. We, you know, then the family and Parasite is like, we got to scam, you know? So maybe it's like the absence. I mean, obviously it's in South Korea, a completely different society than America. But like absence of labor unions equals today, you have to scam to make your way to the top. Plus like, it, it was also interesting thinking about to me thinking about California with this movie, which they regard as like, you know, this land of milk and honey and opportunity. And obviously I think in, you know, our lifetimes, it's like, Oh, California, like 
go out there, start your app company, do your startup, mm-hmm. make your get your stock options, like, you know, in also in this way, this land of milk and honey, but like milk and honey of like made up bullshit stock market tech. Blah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think those are I think those are both interesting examples of Laura's of Judas and the Black Messiah and Mia's of Parasite of things that are doing as close to what a version can be today of that because obviously we're not in the same historical moment and whatever um, but I guess especially Parasite since it takes place in the present of when it came out and is very connected to what's going on in korea but also elsewhere i mean there's a reason it resonated around the world and won best picture the first foreign Mm -hmm. or international film to win best picture at the oscars here you know it 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 resonated so i do think that there's space for them like but the other side of that is that those movies while successful for what they are we don't have movies that really like perform at the level of what like a typical hollywood movie did back then uh, we don't have to continue this conversation i don't know what it has to do with anything honestly but <laughs> just like, <laughs> no like, i like this <laughs> that movies are so i mean and i mean so segmented yeah like, yeah we don't have the same mm-hmm. mainstream like the yeah. the, the mm-hmm. only thing that yeah. things that go mainstream these days are franchise films right and we that's a whole other discussion like i don't want to be sitting here like martin scorsese saying that's not cinema Fuck yeah. off, you know but um but it's a different thing it's it's not it's it's going for a different thing. The intention is different, the goal is different, and the results are different. They make tons of money because they can just like be watched by anyone around the world, and you don't have to think that much about them. But you can if you want to, and you could obsess over them. But yeah, it's kind of like the big studios showed up with their tractors on the lawns of the thought-provoking <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. filmmaker. It'll be somebody else right. with their, I should say, In their line. tractors are the Marvel movies or something. Right. I, <laughs> yeah. Oh my yeah, god! Yeah, tractor, there's another one coming. Right up. Yeah. One, one, one thing I do want to p- point out about Judas and the Black Messiah, even though that is, you know, it's a period piece, so it's not quite the same as Grapes of Wrath, where it was like about a thing that literally but just it happened is, in though. this country. Grapes of Wrath isn't. It's. It's not done in that time. It's. I mean, it was. It had just happened in the years previous. Right, but yeah. ten or twenty years previous, like, like around probably in the last ten years. Yeah. The Great Depression I mean, was like nineteen twenty-nine. Yeah, so it was like that decade before. But my point is, what I was going to say is that Judas and Black Messiah is a studio movie. It was put out by Warner Brothers. I mean, because of when it came out, it came out on HBO Max more than anything because of the pandemic, but. It is interesting that Warner Brothers made a movie like that. So mm-hmm. the studios do still make stuff like that. And a lot of times it's because they want awards contenders to have that prestige. Although Warner Brothers these days looks like they just want to sell everything off for parts. But whatever. Okay, That's wait. I have thing. one more movie. What about <laughs> 9 to 5 starring Jane Fonda? Oh, yeah. Also sure. kind of a collective, you know, <laughs> got to get sure. together. I mean, they murder definitely, or definitely. sort of murder. They, so. Again, a 40-year-old movie, it's though. It's an accident. It's an accident. God, I love that movie. Love that movie. Yeah, love that movie. Great. Oh, yeah, my God. It's great. Genius. Great. Yeah. Genius. Put that um, on the sight and sound list. <laughs> so... <laughs> I, I I wanted to bring up uh, if if it's okay. Um, I I think that a lot of, a lot of this movie obviously rides on Henry Fonda being the nominal star 
I mean, he he he's like the lead of it, but he he's not always on screen. Like they, you know, it's an ensemble movie, really, right? Um, and but but it culminates in one of the more famous little speeches of cinema history, which we played a clip at the beginning of of the show of, and I I think that so much of this movie, as has been pointed out, like he is cynical at the start of this movie. And I think that that the performance shows something that isn't in every Henry Fonda performance. Like Alicia, you said you think of him as America's grandpa. And I think he, I think generally he is thought of by people as like upstanding Henry Fonda, you know, like upstanding citizen of America or whatever. And I like that this movie plays into a menace that he has in him that 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 tense this performance and you don't see in a lot of his roles that I've seen at least like the only other one the only movie I can think of where he played like a straight up villain is Once, Once Upon, Upon a Time, Time in, the in the West and he's just like evil incarnate in that movie yeah but this is interesting because he's almost like an anti-hero um here but he ultimately you could I, I don't maybe this is the question I should ask actually do you think that that speech is him losing his cynicism or is it a continuation of his cynicism? Like, or wh where do you think this finds him on that scale or, or spectrum? I think he's seen too much to lose his cynicism, but the idea that I think he's losing his, um, sort of how like a, a preacher theoretically is supposed is in acting in God. I think he's, he knows that his time is short and when he does act, it'll be for every, everything else and for, for the fight. He's like a cynic that found a cause. <laughs> yeah. Know. That's how I'm I thought of it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like he's channeling yeah. his cynicism. Yeah. Into positive, into something more positive, hopefully. I mean, we don't ever see what he action he actually takes, but I'm hopeful. <laughs> he seemed hopeful right. about it. Yeah. yeah. I feel like, yeah, he was kind of saved by him. By the yeah. by, the preacher. <laughs> I didn't way. find hope in it. I found um, he just determination. I felt that definitely that, but it was almost like an acceptance that he will be dead soon. He will be murdered, mm -hmm. um, but he will be murdered fighting for what, for, in the way that Casey was um, murdered. Not to take the speech too literally, but like, what what do you think he kind of means by "I'll be there"? Like, that's always been. I, I feel like it's a quote that, if you pay attention to movies at all, you hear it. Like, it was on the a one of the things that they nominated for AFI is like hundred years, hundred quotes, or whatever the hell that list was called. Um, but it's it's listed often as like one of the more famous um, and powerful quotes in movies. And I think it's easy to just kind of gloss over what it actually means. Cause like, he's not, obviously he's not saying I'm going to be everywhere that anything is happening. He's talking about like in, in right before where the clip started at the beginning of the show, he's saying that like, maybe he's just a part of a bigger thing. So if he's everywhere, that just means he's a part of the thing that's everywhere. Right. So I, I don't know. I don't know what my question is here, but like, I thought it meant his death won't be in vain. Sure. Same. Yeah, like he's gonna but like try and organize because he's a part of a bigger yeah, thing. Yeah, because he's right? gonna he's like dies fighting for what he believes. Yeah, in. yeah, and, and like organizing Casey. people and for his family. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Yeah, in the hope that children will be able to laugh and sit down for a healthy dinner yeah. when supper's <laughs> ready. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm largely good. asking this question because I first watched this movie when I was a kid. And like when you're a kid, even when you know something is like a message and like a a parable or something, you still kind of take things a little literally in your mind. And oh, so I was okay. like, what does he mean he's going to be there? And so like I feel like <laughs> it's just been stuck in my head for 20 years, even though I know that's not what it means. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 I mean, in a way, like when you he- – maybe there's some kids that heard that and – you know, a superhero was born from that speech. Yeah, he's like Batman. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I think I thought mm-hmm. of him as a ghost, and then there's the ghost of Tom Joad, like the song too. So it's oh. like the, he he's talking about himself as the spirit of a movement, you know, mm-hmm. which is kind of like ballsy to christen yourself that. But <laughs> well, I, we didn't really talk about any of the religious themes with this yet at least um and i don't know if we want to open up that whole thing but like you know i think there's clearly like they go on this journey they arrive in the land of milk and honey oh wait it doesn't turn out to be what it's going to be like like to me it was definitely like old testament you know the jews fleeing egypt and the evil pharaoh is like the banks and the corporations and stuff and tractoring down their farms so i guess this to me was also just kind of keeping in with like the religious themes of it where he's like i'm gonna be like jesus like i'm i'm gonna be there even if you don't see me or whatever yeah i didn't even pick up on that but yeah totally I felt like that with his name being Joe, it sort of sounded like Job, and Job had a lot of trials. Mm-hmm. So that's what it made me think of originally. I said the, uh, the preacher was very honest about why he <laughs> stopped preaching. He wasn't just like, oh, yeah. I lost my faith or whatever. He was like, yeah, I like to, <laughs> basically, I like to fuck. And I don't see anything wrong with The holy that. vessel. <laughs> <laughs> It was delicately put, that's for sure. <laughs> it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah but you he had game. <laughs> Which is funny. I remembered watching, I, I went to Catholic school up until high school, unfortunately. And I remember we, like, the end of the year, one year, we had to watch a bunch of, like, veggie tales. Like, we were, like, way too old for this. But it's, like, you know, like the last, like, few days of school, and they're, like, whatever. And I remember we watched a Grapes of Wrath veggie tales. And like now I'm just like, wait, what the hell? Like I would love to go back and I mean, not really, but like in theory, I'd love to go back and watch that and be like, were they just emphasizing like the religious side of this here? Because there's no way they were like, yeah, socialism through veggie tales, you know? I've never seen a veggie tale. I have no it's idea like what they're literally a fucking tomato and a cucumber in like yeah. a like oaky thing. And they're like, we're going to California. That's all I remember. But I just remember being like the grapes of wrath. And then, and I think there was lots of like puns about the grapes and stuff like that. I don't know. It's, it's not good, but. Well, uh, Mia, I think you had a question for the group. Sure. I want to go to that. In the book, the family splits up more completely at the end than in the film. Do you think the way that the film ends with Ma, Pa, and the kids, minus Tom, still together, strengthens or weakens the political message of the story? For a minute. To me, it was at that point, they they were together, but were they? The dad was barely there. Pregnant lady was comatose. You know, <laughs> her speech had a, an optimistic, hopeful strength to it, but <clears throat> I don't think it would have made much difference if they there were a few more of them kind of petered off i get the realism behind not ending something in an optimistic way or ending it in a more 
cynical way or whatever. I haven't read the book, so I don't know fully everything that happens. But like, there does come a point when you're just like watching a movie <laughs> that's already been kind of a long, difficult journey that at the end, you, you don't necessarily want to leave feeling like, God, what did I just like subject myself to? You know, like I, I even though, you know, as an adult, you know, like a lot of these people didn't make it and a lot of families split up and people died and bad things happened, but people did make it too. So, you know, plenty of those people were brought out of their situation by the economic opportunities that happened during World War II. And so like there was a way the country got out of it. So even maybe in 1940, they didn't know that was going to happen, but it did happen. Um, Not for everybody, but for a lot of people. So I'm okay with it. (laughs) You know, I'm okay with Mm. the ending being a little bit of like, we just keep going. Like we just keep going until something happens. Something will happen, whatever that may be, but we'll hope it's good. I, like, I feel like I'm okay with that as like an ethos, you know, in life. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know if that ending was necessarily positive. It was sort of like, you know, what Alicia had said was like, yeah, we are going to continue on, but I didn't necessarily think like, oh, I didn't feel super hopeful about it. I just felt like what they were going to go through was going to be what we just saw for the last two hours. At least that's the way it kind of hit me. And I remember that Ma had given a speech a little while ago about like the kids being raised and they'd be feral. And, you know, mm-hmm. they were, they just, they kind of needed Tom to kind of bring the family together and with him leaving in general, it still was going to kind of disperse itself. So I feel like the movie still wasn't necessarily that hopeful. It was just sort of like, this is just the way that life is. And it's neither bad or it's good. It's just sort of like, what was kind of given to us. Right. Uh, I think I agree with Alicia about like you kind of in a movie like this, want this kind of an ending where there's a hopeful note, but you're not sure it's going to work out for them. I'm not sure you quite said that Alicia, but that's my further interpretation of it. Like it could still go completely wrong from there, but they, some of them are still together. They have this hope that Tom is off being helpful to the world in some way on their behalf. Um, but I, this is where I think what I was talking about before of this being a movie made at the end of the depression and going into world war II. I think that that is really perhaps at least part of what that speech is about from ma, you know, like about we're we, the people it's like this hopeful note, like the country is in this position where they're like, we're going to go to war soon but maybe it'll be okay. And like, that's kind of what this speech gets at in, in a way. I know she's talking specifically about, um, you know, their family and families like theirs are what make this country great. And they're the ones who are gonna keep it running. And uh, they're gonna be the ones who are gonna go off the war in, in a year or two from when this movie comes out, you know? And they're gonna be the ones who are gonna have to get that done and then come home and try to keep things going from there. And uh, and she and the other women and some of the men are going to be the ones who have to stay at home during that and like figure out how to make it work without a large part of the population overseas fighting, you know? So like, I do think that there's movies from this era and I think this is one of them have that hint of like some shit's about to go down. So let's all like, just kind of like think about stuff and prep for that. And like, I feel like do, do you guys disagree with me that that speech is maybe at least partially aimed at people with that on their mind? 
No, I don't disagree. I, I think so. I mean, obviously, like, you know, like this huge war is already happening over there and um, there had already been a huge war mm-hmm. like a generation before. So that we had won. So I guess maybe there was like this thing of like, well, we just, we can, it's going to be hard, but we can do it. I think that that echoes in her speech, even though, yeah, they didn't know, but they had hope. Yeah, I mean, I think like I'm okay with hopeful endings. I, you know, I'm, I'm not. I don't love the kind of ending where like they moved to California and they got a mansion or something for all their troubles. You know, <laughs> you don't so like I, the Beverly yeah, it's been saying the Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, their car did look like the jalopy that they had it in the did. Beverly Hillbillies. Oh my god, that it car! Did. When it almost tipped over when they were like on the, I was like, oh my god. When they're changing the tire, and I was like, oh, my God, this car is going to crush someone. Like, what are you doing? I don't know how they made it. I mean, and they were like, yeah, it's already old and like a problem before they even got on the road. I was like, how did they not just die in the desert? I know. (laughs) Honestly. During that scene when he's changing the tire, there's a moment that's like easy to miss where Tom's like, Mom, get off of there. I love that part. (laughs) So does anybody have anything else they want to say about this before we take a break? I'm just going to say I liked Ma's speech at the end more than I liked Tom Jode's speech. Okay, there you go. So those are our thoughts on The Grapes of Wrath, and we will share our final thoughts on the movie and answer our bonus question after the break. And we're back. So, what was everyone's favorite scene or moment or some element of the movie that really struck you? It could be music, um, I don't know, editing, whatever. Uh, Steven, I'll start with you. Uh, my favorite scene of the movie, or, or one of the favorite scenes, was uh, I think it was when that family at the beginning, I think when Tom had run into like a neighbor or something and they were talking about like how they lost their house and they were saying like the bank, you know, oh, I think it was, what was it? It was who they should shoot. I thought that was just kind of an interesting thing. It's like, it, it, mm-hmm. there's no one really to blame, but everybody's to blame at the same time. Just the way that that kind of unfolded was really interesting. It's just like, you wanted a tangential person to blame, but there just wasn't any. I just thought that was kind of an interesting scene. Right. Alicia? Um, I'm having a hard time like thinking of a favorite because it's just like such a like difficult, dark journey most of the way through. But I will say like... <laughs> Uh, the Red River Valley song that played like constantly <laughs> throughout the whole movie <laughs> struck me this time. I don't, that's a song that I also learned as like a really little child. I don't know. I guess my mom thought it was like an easy song to teach or something. So I won't, I don't want to say that's my favorite thing because it's like a bit much because it's like that throughout the entire movie. But mm-hmm. I did um, sort of enjoy hearing it for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Laura? I enjoyed um, obviously anything with Casey and I particularly when he wanted to get handcuffed. I thought that was just, you know, mm-hmm. um, light a light moment in, in a dark movie. Um, but visually, I think the opening shot really struck me kind of the hardest and st- stuck with me. It's the most beautiful. All right. 
and Mia. Okay, definitely not the most beautiful, but when they get to that first camp and there's that one really long tracking shot as they're going in and it's just like squalor and people are living in like tar people shacks and their cars and the kids are a mess and everything. And I just is really like, whoa. And it, you can imagine it hitting them. And I just thought that was scene was really powerful. Uh, I'm going to be real basic here and say the Tom <laughs> Joad speech because it's just, it's like, it hits me every time. I'm always like, oh, it's coming up. It's coming up. There it is. And it's always really good. I mean, and so much of that is it's Henry Fonda just kills it. He does. So mm -hmm. it's a good speech. I know it's cliche. But it's, oops, that's me. <laughs> no, it's it's I mean, it's did the test like you, it's an important speech. Yeah, I don't think that you should. I, I, I think it's OK. Oh, to, I'm not sorry. Yeah, okay. I'm just I'm feigning being sorry. All right, cool. But um, <laughs> things are cliche for a reason sometimes. Yeah. Um, Good point. So has the movie, as far as we are concerned, stood the test of time or another way of framing it? Do you think it resonates today? Alicia? Yeah, definitely. I think it stands the test of time. And I think that there's still plenty of parallels in modern society that you can find. And so it still resonates. I think some of the performances don't resonate, <laughs> but I think the overall message uh, resonates. Okay. And Stephen? Yeah, I think the story definitely resonates and, and it's probably one of those stories that's going to continue, <laughs> you know, every year. Um, and I also liked how the story was more of a drama. It was actually a drama, not a melodrama, because it would have been really easily to fall into something like that just because of everything that was happening. But um, so I, I feel like it, it is a movie that you'll be able to watch anytime and, and still get something out of it and still really enjoy the performances. Laura? Absolutely. Okay. Any any more? Nope. Okay. <laughs> Mia? Also, absolutely. And I'll just say too, I think in this era we're living in of book banning and restrictions on teaching and all that, like all the more. Like everyone should read this book. Everyone should watch this movie. There's important messages in here that I think we're gonna need if we're gonna overcome Amazon and everyone else's stranglehold on our society. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it obviously stands the test of time and resonates today. In the last few years, there's been more focus on unionization, uh, which I think is great. And obviously this movie is largely about that. To what Mia was saying, I almost forgot. I think I did forget that they specifically say something in the movie about reds. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I think it's kind of, it, it it's almost shocking that it's in there. Like it, it was- But they don't- I, I don't know if- They don't define it. No. Yeah. Well, it, it's, I, I like that the context that they have it in of like someone who's coming from that situation is like, what the hell are you even talking about? I'm just like trying to like figure out how to live my goddamn life. Yeah. And you're t calling me a communist? I don't even know what that means. Yes. And, and I, I do think it's, kind of a daring thing for a filmmaker to do in a in a big movie like this back then i'm kind of surprised it's in a studio film in 1940 and i mean i know that that uh zanuck the producer at fox was very concerned about um whether they were going to get called out for being a communist movie in in this production and so the fact that they kind of name check it 
I wonder if that was supposed to be their way of sort of like deflating it or something. He says it but, twice. Yeah. Um, I, I was just surprised. I'm surprised that it's in there. And I think it's important that's in there, I guess. I just noticed that he, he asks the same, he says the same exact line twice. Like, mm-hmm. what is that anyway? What is a red anyway? Yeah. Like, it's like really right. hitting at home. He does not know. No. Yeah. I, a couple of things about that, just real quick. One, I think they fought to have that in the movie. I forget where I read this, oh, but really? yeah, I read it somewhere that like, I, I think again, there's like more of that kind of language in the book. And I think for the movie, they were like, no, like we're going to say this. It's going to be a small part, but like we have to put this in here. And then they also did a lot of research into like the conditions that people were living in, in Oklahoma and in the migrant camps. I think part of all the like extensive research was they were like, we know people are going to come at us and say, this is a communist movie. So we need to be prepared to say like, no, this is like actually how people are living. But -hmm. I just also thought it was interesting that, yeah, he's like, what are you talking about, man? I'm just trying to like get enough food to eat and feed my family. And it just really hit me hard with this. You know, there's such this smear campaign and has been for so long in this country against like socialism and communism and, you know, any ism that isn't just like fucking like complete, total, unbridled capitalism. And, you know, I half the people can't even like define these things they're scared of or don't know what they are. They just know they're scared of them for some reason. Mm-hmm. So I was like, wow, this could be like a facebook meme thing that someone's posting right now so i think a lot of the really i mean i know there was like anti-communist sentiment you know forever in the 20th century but i think like the worst of it came after world war ii Mm -hmm. (laughs) i think there was like during the 1930s especially there was like a somewhat strong communist that's true. I don't know if communist is well, doing the right word, but no, I think people were fucking communists. Yeah, they totally. signed up. Yeah, and so they said they but, were, but you know, true. I don't know. Yeah, but there was also a strong contingent on the other side saying, "Fuck no, never in America." Yeah, yeah, I think it came to more of a head with the McCarthy era in the fifties after the war, but it was definitely a thing, mm-hmm. and I think it. I, I do think that like maybe only a filmmaker of John Ford's stature at the time with a star like Henry Fonda could, I think they give a lot of cover to the movie having those lines in there and other political messages in the movie overall, really, you know, like they were like the top of their game or, you know, some of the best known stars and directors at the time. And he did, I think had just done young Mr. Lincoln. (laughs) Yeah, and drums along the Mohawk, and yeah, and he'd just done Stagecoach, which is like tremendously popular. And he'd—I mean, as we I think talked about earlier in the episode, he was—he's like decades into this career at this point. Mm-hmm. Anyway, okay. So our bonus question for this episode is: What's one of your favorite film adaptations of a book you had to read in school? And Stephen, do you want to start? Um, it's a cliche, but To Kill a Mockingbird. In 1962, um, I just felt like it was it was a really good adaptation. Good one. And uh, Mia, um, I'm gonna go with Matilda. <laughs> it's so good. Okay. The cake. Oh my god! I feel like I reference having to eat that giant cake. Like it comes up like once a week. It's so relevant. Yeah, I'm always like, what are you like, talking and I'm about? Like, Were you never I- a child? <laughs> 
Um, Laura. I'm going to choose uh, the 1988 film The Chocolate War based on the book. And it's directed by Keith Gordon, who he was this he's in he was in this movie called Back to School and he was in like Christine and he was this eighties actor and then he became a director. What's the book? Mm. The Chocolate War. Who's the Chocolate book? War? You you guys haven't read that? Um never heard of it. I read it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know it. It's about um a private school and um the corruption around um selling chocolate obviously and it's i think a really great book and the movie was really underrated and yaz does the soundtrack so it's super super fun for me mm. really into it and alisa um, i'm gonna say two things <laughs> because i'm having a hard time choosing so the first one is like serious it's the color purple um i really love that movie um and i think like such interesting performances from Whoopi Goldberg and Oprah Winfrey and just people you wouldn't necessarily have thought could pull that off that do it really wonderfully. And then my other one is Clueless, which is an adaptation of Emma. Mm. I just love that movie. And I love Emma. I love the story of Emma. And I just love it. So that's just like a very personal favorite. You'll love Do Revenge then. There's a lot of Clueless uh, <laughs> outfit similarities and vibes mm-hmm. and stuff. Okay. You got, you sold me. I definitely want to watch it. It's so good. <laughs> like, I want to rewatch it. It was that good. <laughs> I think To Kill a Mockingbird is is probably what I would go with if Stephen hadn't said it. Um, but I'm going to go with, uh, just to get another one in there. The, actually, the first thing I thought of, because I didn't think of To Kill a Mockingbird, was The Quiet American and I like the book more than the movie. The movie's okay. This is more endorsement for the book. I really like the book. I, I'm kind of going the opposite on the question, I guess. Um, <laughs> but I, I liked I liked the book. Quiet American is basically about the origins of the Vietnam War for America. Like it's it's kind of has these characters that are sort of representative of the French government, of course, the different factions in Vietnam, uh, and the Quiet American and the English, like different people coming together before that war broke out, really. And it kind of sets, it's almost like a parable of how it got going and how America kind of stepped into it and turned it into a clusterfuck. Um, But the movie's pretty good, but the book is better. Alicia. I just had a bonus, bonus question idea. What? <laughs> I need a effect for that. Does anyone have a uh, an adaptation that they mm. t- completely hate that they've seen that they thought didn't work at all? Ooh. I do, but I also know it's a favorite. Say it. Who are you going to insult? Baz's Romeo oh, and Juliet is away. fucking horrible. Uh. What? <laughs> I hate that movie so much. <laughs> what? It's just like... So- yeah, it's bad. Interesting. Super bad. They had no chemistry. Claire Danes cries the whole time. It's just Baz on crack because he's seriously. Wait, can I clarify? Was the question also about something that we had to read in school, but a bad adaptation yeah, or just yeah. a bad adaptation in general? Well, whatever you want. You know, if you just, we'll just if something comes okay. to mind. I, I did have to read this book. So, yeah, it's uh, The Scarlet Letter. It was the one with Demi Moore. Oh, yeah, that's bad. <laughs> it was super, Classically super terrible. Bad. It's pretty bad. So, so bad. 
It was really bad. It was a bummer. <laughs> um, I think I paid cash money to see that movie wow. too, which is unfortunate. Mm. I guess I could say I had to read this for school, even though I'd read it before that, but I ended up reading it for a class in college. Uh, the film adaptation of Watchmen is fucking terrible. Mm. Um, mm. And it's oddly very faithful, which is part of the problem. It's mm-hmm. just like overly faithful. It's like, I don't need to see a comic book frame on screen. Show me action, you know, like tell me the story. Don't fucking just, I could read the book. Like, and I did, and I don't need this movie. They also twisted the ending. I didn't, I, I actually thought that that was a smart change. And if the movie itself before that was working, like that would have made sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, if you watch the HBO show, I, I, I'm that that idea that I just said is even proven wrong because like they they lean into that ending of the the graphic novel and mm-hmm. series and uh, it works just fine. Mm. I was yeah. thinking um the one that I really that always stood out to me is like the worst experience I maybe ever had watching a movie in a classroom was the Orson Welles version of Macbeth. Oh. <laughs> I don't even remember anything about it other than like shadows and like rain and <laughs> Shakespearean language and Orson Welles. I was just like, oh, just <laughs> never. Like, if, I mean, I, Macbeth is already like a play that has like a bad reputation in like the the theater. That's you know you're supposed to call it the Scottish play and stuff like that when you're in a theater. And I was just like, yeah, I hate this. There's like some sort of darkness over this. <laughs> <laughs> it's bad. Anyone else? Mia? Oh, I'm trying to think. And so far, I've come up with two books who I really like. And I heard that the movies are terrible. But actually, because I heard they were so bad, I never saw them. Because I was like, no, I just don't want to go there. Um, so The Perks of Being a Wallflower fucking love mm. that book so much i heard the movie's terrible and then the giver oh is it good i i would i liked it okay i mean but i didn't read the book though so mm. I, I can't yeah. say yeah but i enjoyed it did you read the book laura no okay okay um not that i'm not saying you have to or anything i was just curious um <laughs> the book is so good it's a sign to you now <laughs> for the next episode i actually reread the perks of being a wallflower like a couple like in the last few years and i was like Okay, but when I was like 14, I like really, really loved that book, so. Well, our next episode is Stephen's fifth pick. Stephen, do you want to tell us what that is and Uh, other choice information? Sure. Um, The next movie is Pierrot le Fou, which is Pierrot the Fool. I think that's what it is in French. Um, And it was directed by Jean-Luc Godard, released in 1965. And it should be available with a subscription on the Criterion channel or to rent via Apple, Amazon, Google, or anywhere else that you find streaming stuff. All right. So that's it for this episode of the Stereoactive Movie Club. We invite you to join us in our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Stereoactive Movie Club. You can also email us at stereoactivemovieclub at gmail.com. And you can subscribe to the show just about anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, or anywhere else that allows you to do that. It helps others to find the show, and we would appreciate it. Also, you can get updates about the show by following Stereoactive Media on Instagram or Twitter. Thanks for listening.
podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media. Stereoactive Media.